Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, I'm Tom Watson, and this is my podcast, Persons of Interest. In my 20 years in the House of Commons, I was lucky enough to meet some truly fascinating people, but I didn't always manage to spend enough time with them to work out what makes them tick. So now I'm going to correct that by inviting them and you to join me for a longer chat. And in this episode, I'm talking to Horace Panton, the legendary bass player with the specials, artist in his own right, former teacher and former resident of the city of Coventry. I've been obsessed with the band The Special since I was a kid. I was a Fred Perry wearing fanboy in my teens. I'm a Fred Perry wearing fanboy in my 50s. I love this band not just because of the music and the history, but because they're still on the road, still passionate, still telling the story of British culture in their own way as they see it, fiercely independent and giving hope to my generation. Horace wrote a great book called Scarred for Life, which talked about the early days of the specials, how the group came together, how they could fuse reggae and punk to create their own sound, and what it was like to be in the crucible of being Britain's greatest band. It was a funny conversation for me because you can tell that I'm in awe of him. I was genuinely a fan talking to a hero. Horace. It's 42 years and one day since that night when you were supporting The Clash as a newly named band, The Specials, and Joe Strummer and Paul Simonon got arrested. I'm going to open up with that. Okay. Tell me how that felt. Jeez. Um, Glasgow Apollo, yes? Yeah, that's right. I don't know. I always tell the story that we started The Clash tour as civilians, but ended it as a group. You know what I mean? That was our kind of rock and roll boot camp. It was only like sort of three weeks in 1978. And to be specific, the Clash and the Bouncers at the Glasgow Apollo had history. I think the last time they played, there was a big fight and the Glasgow punks uh, meted out some serious retribution to the local bouncers. So the Clash returning to the Glasgow Apollo was like payback time for the band, whether they liked it or not. So the bouncers were out for blood. And we um, were kind of aware of this, but we were too sort of wrapped up in it being such an exciting time in our lives. And there was that archetypal moment where we actually played. And the Glasgow Apollo has an enormously high stage. So you couldn't spit at, well, you could try and spit at us, but it it probably reached our boots rather than, you know, (laughs) our, our, our clothing. And then The Clash played and all hell broke loose. Um, There was all kinds of, you know, bouncers were just just decided to wade in and um, attack the punters and and who fought back and this, that and the other. And the the punks were sort of going, do something, do something. And it was obviously extremely frustrating for The Clash because 
they were up there not being spat at and, and were unable to do anything. So the, the show ended, it finished, you know, they played, they came up and they were extremely frustrated. Joe and Paul went outside to sort of meet the fans and sort of and um, explain their situation and the Glasgow punks going, why didn't you do something? Why didn't you stop this? Why? And Joe apparently was very frustrated with the, the whole thing and smashed a bottle. Like, I don't know what sort of a bottle, a milk bottle, I don't know. But the police who were over the road thought, right, we'll have you. And they came to take him away. And Paul Simonon was uh, protesting like he would. So they go, okay, well, you can come as well. So that was that. So that happened. And we got this promise that we might be able to get a hotel room that night at the hotel where the Clash was staying. So we got in our van and went to this hotel where the Clash was staying and sort of sculpt around in um, reception. While um, the Clash were on the phone to the police station and the tour manager was having kittens, you know, so we were kind of pretty low on the list of priorities at the time. And then the lift doors at the hotel, at the reception area open and out comes Danny LaRue. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so he sort of like just summed up the situation in a glance and went, um, good night, boys, and just sort of walked off into the waiting limo and off into the darkness. And we never got the hotel room. We had to sleep in the van on the road. So we, we found a cul-de-sac or a, a lay-by somewhere. And that was that. You see, the reason I ask you about that is when I read your book, which is a beautifully honest book, and your recollections uh, of your time in music, they're affectionate. But it seems to me that in that part of the book, you're describing a time when you're genuinely, you're at your happiest. There you are, an emerging band. You've all come together from different musical genres. You know you've got something going on. You've worked hard. You in particular worked hard, holding down a day job while the, you know, to help pay for the many problems you had getting transit vans to get your gear around. And then there's that clash moment and it's like something has happened. And yet fast forward two years later, in what is an amazing period of British cultural history, at another gig in Cambridge, there's Terry and Jerry getting arrested for actually wading in onto some Zeke Heiling Nazis that very rarely but occasionally plagued the band. And that period of two years, that seems like a sort of beginning and an ending for me in the book. Have I got that kind of right, the band beginning to deteriorate just after your Japanese tour? Pretty much, yes. I, th I think it was America that destroyed us to be honest. And, and you're right, we changed because I think on that Clash tour, we had nothing and we had everything to gain. We had everything to prove to ourselves, to you know, fans or whatever. But then when we experienced success, it changed us in some ways for good, in some ways for bad. But I think we, we didn't have any, there wasn't so much that bound us together. You know, I always look about the, the beginning of 1979 as, as, as like when Brad joined, because like Brad wasn't part of the band on the Clash tour. We still had Silverton, our original drummer then. But um, those early shows in early 1979 were great because we just released Gangsters. We picked up fans and whatever, the culmination of which was like the two-tone tour in 1979. And we were amazing. We were unstoppable. But then we went to America and we just got exhausted. But yes, so by the time we got to Cambridge, it was a little bit like going through the motions somehow. Yeah. And yet, when I saw you last year, mm. Coventry Cathedral, 
first time I fitted into a Fred Perry after a few years of being too overweight to fit in one. We're there watching you. The energy, you know, what, 40 years on, was still there. Mm. It felt to me like you were giving a lot back on that tour, and particularly in Coventry where there were people, you know, we obviously are all devoted to you, but you look very content with life and very happy. I'd, I'd go along with that, Tom, yes. I consider myself extremely lucky to have this amazing opportunity to do what I did 40 years ago when I was, you know, 26, 27, to do, you know, in my in, in my 60s. It, it is amazing. And those shows in Coventry were more than just concerts. There was like, a, they were celebrations, but something of more than just music or more than just Coventry. And they were great. So I, I feel very lucky to be able to, I don't know, just pick up on that because the specials are more than just a pop group. Which is in itself is quite a responsibility, but it's a very joyous one as well. It's funny you say it's a responsibility. I I think I'm right in saying you did all the placards for the backdrops on that tour. No, I didn't do all of them. Terry and I did. I I did some of them. Terry did did, did some of them, yeah. So I wouldn't take responsibility for one. Well, the two of you did that. And then I know you you raised a bit of money for your charities there. What struck me about that was there's you and Terry doing something that other bands would probably hire some art director to do or some agency or there'd be a record company or a manager sorting all that out. But it was important to you that you still had that kind of level of detail. And it really took me back to a bit again in the book, which is obviously a really affectionate moment between you and Terry, where the first 1,500 two-tone singles, or perhaps 150, I can't remember which, you got a little stamp made. Yes. something like the specials versus the selector yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah when you set up your own record label and yet there you go the two of you again have found a time in life where you're making your own placards yeah i hadn't thought about that but yes you're right that's that's, that's interesting now no i think i i asked everybody to come around and help me but terry was the only one who could be bothered to turn up Bless which was nice. So, yeah. And it seems like with the band, I mean, you did a lot of that, didn't you? In the early days, I mean, you, you would actually do a lot of the driving of the transit van. <laughs> well, that's because it was the most comfortable seat in the van. Come on, there's like eight of us, you know, seven of us plus a roadie or something, you know, stuck in a transit and all that equipment, you know. So, yes, but I, I never drank a lot or took drugs so I was the one who was who remained sober so it kind of made sense that I drove back from Manchester or Bristol and you'd always been like that I mean there was a bit in the book where you said that you you knew how to pack it up so that everyone could sit on the amps yeah uh, yeah. you used to work for your dad's furniture yes yeah yeah. I still love a good pack there is nothing I like better than a good pack okay so 42 years and one day ago was mm. the clash. And then 42 years and a little bit less than that, a few days after that gig, you're at uh, the Crawley Leisure Centre. Yes. And you're playing Liquidator. And that's the first time you really, as a band, sort of experience what, it, you know, an audience that have got racist elements in it. And in the book, it's almost like you described that as a point where there was a, a sort of political consciousness grown in the band. It, the was, very, it was a very pivotal moment, I think, that Crawley leisure centre show on the Clash tour, yeah. Just describe that for me, Horace, because that must have been quite was, a moment for a young band. The atmosphere at those Clash shows was very, not exactly tense, but exciting and just sort of like, oh, the Clash are coming up. But the atmosphere at this particular show was 
tense and it just felt different somehow. And there were all these different skinhead gangs from Crawley. So I suppose from South London, I suppose we were even from North London. And they were all kind of in their own little groups. We experienced that a year later with like football stuff. And it was, we played, and I, and I don't suppose to that many people because they were all in the bar game drunk and we played League Liquidate and all these sort of reggae things and there's Limbo and Neville and Silverton and whatever and, and, and we came off and then Suicide who were the, the proper support band on the tour came on and some bloke from the audience got up on stage and smacked him in the face which was like oh okay that's not good it, it's going to be like that and I think Jimmy Percy was there so when The Clash played um, he came on and like tried to sort of mollify the crowd but it was just kind of evil but it was like this is if we're going to be popular this is the audience that we're going to have whether we like it or not you know what I mean I mean did that affect how you you know the lyric writing and how you challenge audiences I don't know if it changed the actual songwriting but it definitely changed the attitude of how we related to our stage performance and I don't know it, it just made it a little bit more serious we became like I say more than just a pop group you know, we knew that, that our songs had a message. But I think that Crawley show, it, 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 we were just a little bit more aware of what we were going to face. And this, I think that was always in the back of our mind. You know, whenever sort of anything went pear-shaped, we'd sort of refer back to Crawley. You know, it was a, a pivotal moment, definitely. You always remember the crap shows, don't you? you? You know, I mean, there were so many amazing special concerts. But it's like, it's... Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Yeah. I remember seeing you uh, in Wolverhampton. What, God, must be five or six years ago now. And at mm. the time, you were doing a sort of photo montage of the 80s. Yes. Super both before you came on stage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was a really emotional moment for me because just before you came on stage, you then put on the picture of the last edition of the News of the World, which was obviously a huge yeah. humiliation yeah. For, um, for Rupert Murdoch. But it was uh, I was obviously involved in that as a politician in the phone hacking scandal that led to the News of the World being closed. But it was like you were making a statement that, you know, despite all the bad things that were happening in the world, there could be some kind of progress. I mean, do you still consider yourselves a political band? Yes, because it, we're always highlighting or making aware of injustice. And as I, I'm bored with saying it, injustice is timeless. Yeah. So, yes, and, and I still think we're out for writing songs about 
things that have that people can relate to that have a meaning for their their lives. I don't know. Yeah, and and that's one of the great things about. I mean, t- I think Terry as a lyricist, certainly on the More Specials album, he just paints a picture of you know people's lives that w- whether they're sort of bland or desperate, it's a very honest account, and you still manage to do that. I think. Mm. Well, t- I think Terry has grown into a fabulous lyricist. What I liked about the specials was it didn't actually wag its finger at anybody. I think once somebody starts wagging their finger, I think you're, you're in trouble. But whereas if you just sort of say something and just sort of open it up and say, this is how it is or it, it's, it's seen, it gives people the room and the space to make up their own minds. The bands who, are sort of, who enter into polemic I kind of haven't got an enormous amount of time for because they're just basically preaching to the converted. I find that a bit hard. Yeah. I mean, what you're actually doing is painting a picture of society and that kind of neatly gets me on to your visual art. You know, later in life, your visual art is perhaps as important as your music to you. Is that, Am I right in saying that? Over the past three months, it's flipping saved my life, I tell you that much, because I haven't been able to be creative musically, if you know, I haven't been able to play with, with other musicians, but I've still been able to paint. I am art school trained. I met Jerry Dammers at the Lanchester Polytechnic in Calpe of Coventry. We both did a fine art degree. He started a year after me. So I'm art school trained. I've got letters after my name, but I never actually used my degree until uh, I, I retrained as a primary school teacher, 92, 93. But art was always there. You know, I always say that I, I use the fact that um, we would go travelling the world in this pop group and go and visit some of the, the great art galleries and see some of the great art. But so art was always there. And then in 2009, when the band reformed, I suddenly had all this downtime. So I started painting pictures. And Claire, my wife, came back from shopping one day and there's me on the kitchen table with all these. And she was going, these are good. Perhaps we could try and sell these. And it sort of it took off from there, really. Do you talk art with the other band members? I mean, you've all got your own lives, obviously, and you've had your own relationship breaks and splits with each other. But art was always at the heart of it as well. I mean, Jerry was obviously a very complex but arts-driven individual. Mm-hmm. Terry's obviously very creative. I mean, the whole of the band you know different types of art have been key to you in your own different lives do you think that's part of the reason you ended up with that sort of uniqueness the synthesis of ideas and musical genres like you learn at art school gosh i'd never thought about that that's really that's far too deep for a sunday afternoon time <laughs> <It's>, uh, <laughs> no i at the moment i'll talk to terry about painting because he's very into outsider art and he's got a few bits and pieces that he's picked up that's kind of interesting but i think back then Everybody would take the mickey out of me because I didn't go to Studio 54 when we went to New York. You know, I got up early and I went to the Guggenheim instead. So I kind of kept the two things separate. So it was like, where's Horace? Oh, he's probably going to an art gallery, you know, (laughs) (laughs) which was true. But this has been my modus operandi in a lot of groups. I love being in a group, but I like to have my own space as well. So going off to visit an art gallery was one way that I could sort of I don't know, recharge some sort of battery. Does that make sense? It makes a great deal of sense. Because the other thing that comes through is for a lot of the time with the band, you know, you weren't quite the mediator, but you were the sort of the moderating force, I would say. I was the sober one. I was the one who wasn't out of my head on either something that really slowed you down or something that really sped you up very fast. So it it was kind of difficult Yeah, back then. 
Yeah, because everyone was young and doing their own thing. Absolutely. Okay, look, I've gone from difficult questions on a Sunday afternoon. Mm. Let me ask you a slightly more uh, fun ones. What's Debbie Harry like at making tuna sandwiches? Great. The best tuna fish sandwich. Have you? Has she made you a tuna sandwich lately? Not lately, no, no, no. The, the other thing that I dine out on is that I once met the remains of Keith Richards. <laughs> Go on, tell me that, tell me that story. No, we did, um, we did Saturday Night Live, and Dave Jordan, uh, who was our sound engineer, he'd worked with Keith on some Stones-related project. And um, we're sort of hanging out in the Rockefeller Centre at this Saturday Night Live, uh, in the green room or whatever they call it, and in walks this wizened old bloke, grabs hold of Jerry and goes, love your album, mate. And Jerry's like, who the fuck? And it's Keith Richards. Uh, it was quite funny because he lit up a joint in this green room and he passed it over to me. And I go, no, no, thanks. I, I, I don't smoke. And he looked at me and he goes, oh, you have got a problem, mate. Which I thought <laughs> was really funny coming from <laughs> Keith Richards. Keith Richards. And hey, two years ago in 2018, the specials supported the Rolling Stones in Coventry. It was fantastic. That it was. It was absolutely was. amazing. Yeah. You, of course, um, in your early musical influences, you were a bit older than the others. And there's a bit in the book where you talk about the fourth side of one of the Stones' early prog rock albums that was a no no to discuss in the band, but you would sneak off and listen to it on your own. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Still do. Yeah. Still yeah, do. Exile on Main Street, side four. Oh, it's, it's great. It's, it's really good. You know, when you first started, am I right, you were the last member of the band to give up their job before you went full-time professional? I believe so. I think I was probably the only member of them. No, no, that's not true, because Roddy, who worked for the council as a painter and decorator, um, Terry had a job. He worked in a, a philatelist's. Jerry very famously right. said that philately will get you nowhere, and he was right. <laughs> um, yeah. um, and I was this close to buying a house in Coventry, and I would got the contracts i got the solicitor and everything and it was it was going to cost me seven thousand pounds this was in um, late 1978 and it's just like i cannot commit to this because i didn't know whether i was going to be able to afford the mortgage because i was committed to you know to this band it was weird i'd never had to make a decision that was as crucial as that before ever in, in my life I just kind of like drifted through things, really. Or they were easy decisions to make. But this was a real killer to have to do this. Can I take you to, you know, the West Midlands and Coventry? I, I, mm. and I, know, I know you always get questions about Coventry, which is, you know, a bit of an anchor for you. But, but you still remained in the area, haven't you? And you almost sort of, you're the sort of ambassador for the band to Coventry still. And in the book... You're very affectionate. You talk about being able to go out and see named bands two or three nights a week and, you know, the sort of musical scene being very potent back then. Mm. Do you still feel that now? No, no. Um, well, music has changed and Coventry has changed. There are still a couple of places where bands play in Coventry. And my favourite gig in the whole world is um, a, a particular pub in Coventry. I'm not going to tell you what it's called because I don't want hordes of other people turning up to it and it'll ruin it. Um, it's a lovely pub. But Coventry has changed remarkably. To the extent that I have to, I have to fess up to this, that, that we moved. I do not live in Coventry anymore, Tom. I lived in Coventry when I last spoke with you, but a week before the lockdown started, we moved house. 
So we oh. moved just outside Warwick. So oh, we're right. in, in the countryside now. It's, it's not like we've moved, you know, to Huddersfield or, or Bristol or somewhere. I'm still in Warwickshire, but I, um, I'm not in Coventry. But I think I, I became an honorary Coventrian, although I wasn't born there. I went to college there. But it was where, it was obviously, it was where the specials came from. Uh, it's where I met, met my wife. It's where my son was born. Uh, and it's where I worked as a school teacher for 10 years. So you know, there, yeah. there is a lot. You know, I, I do have an affinity for the place. So, Horace, you had a 83-leg tour last year with the band. Yeah. You've had three months of intense making of visual art under lockdown. What comes next? Crikey, the specials, we're going to make a record this year. The day before yesterday, we had our first Zoom meeting, me, Terry, uh, Limbal and our keyboard player, Nico. It was a total waste of time. It was just Terry and Limbal talking about football. <laughs> it was... But we're going we're gonna to do it again next week, and hopefully we'll talk about making some music together. Limbal lives in Seattle, so even if they allow him back into the country, it may he may have to quarantine for two weeks before we can actually make any music. So um, we plan to make um, an album at some stage in the next 12 months. We have a tour booked for next April, May, but that's been put back to September, October. Okay. So it'll be at least a year before stuff happens. Yeah, I mean, there's been many tens of thousands of gigs cancelled, of course, yeah. um, and the problem for live music, I mean, that's a billion pounds a year industry in the UK now, and it's gone from a billion pounds to zero. So Absolutely. Yeah, it's... it's um, yeah. I mean, artists are really hurting now. There's an initiative that, like, the Let the Music Play, that, that musicians are involved with to highlight the fact that, as you've just said, you know, there's this um, enormous dearth of, of live music. I mean, for me, it's the, it's the smaller bands that are, are the people who are going to suffer. I mean, I suppose I'm all right because, you know, we, we, we made sufficient money in 2019 to, to allow us to coast a little bit this year. But there are a lot of bands who live pretty much hand to mouth, you know, and um, all their, their bookings have, 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 have dried up. So I'm, I really feel for them. And also all the ancillary you know, what do all the, the crew guys do, the sound guys do, the, the, the lorry drivers, the scaffolders, all that stuff? You know, they all, um, that's all part of the, the industry. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, I, I support that uh, Let the Music Play thing, definitely. Yeah. That's fantastic. And young bands need powerful voices like yours to help them get through this. And we, we hope the government are listening as well because the commercial music sector in Britain isn't just the best in the world, but it, it is also pays its taxes. and funds the yeah, hospitals yeah. and schools we all value so much so that's fantastic you're involved in that you know you can tell from that conversation just what a lovely person Horace is and I got the impression that if he'd not gone into music he could have been a diplomat he's obviously the person that tried to hold those powerful characters together in the band admitted that he didn't manage to succeed in that but I've still got great affection for those people that made the specials what they are a unique British institution I hope you enjoyed this episode of Persons of Interest if you did do subscribe wherever you get your podcasts to hear more of my conversations if you like it a lot please consider giving us a rating thanks for listening Persons of Interest is an IE Entertainment production. The executive producers 
are Lucy Pullin and Tim Cunningham. This episode was edited by Matt and Scott at Podmonkey. The music by Tom Gray. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.